what reaction do you typically get from from patients when you ask them to be part of a clinical trial? You know, what I try to explain to them is that that it can feel like an interminable process, but but having the most strategic and the most sophisticated approach to tackling the problem and doing the most uh, appropriate thing for them is worth that extra little bit of time. I'm Annie DeMelt. Welcome to this Code Life interview presented by the Montreal General Hospital Foundation. Across the country, lung, esophageal, and stomach cancers are the fastest growing and the most lethal, with a five-year survival rate of less than 20%. However, in the last few years, there have been remarkable advances in treatment of thoracic cancers, and the surgeons at the Montreal General Hospital have contributed directly to these advances. What the team wants to do now is to give more patients access to the most innovative care, the cutting-edge kind of treatments that are becoming tomorrow's standard. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Spicer, director of the McGill Thoracic Oncology Network and a thoracic surgeon at the Montreal General Hospital. Dr. Spicer, nice to have you with us. Um, Nice to be here. I, I just wanted to ask you first about why there's reason to be optimistic or, or hopeful right now. I've heard a lot of your colleagues, not only at the MUHC, but also um, reading something from a, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic and, and just saying that it's, 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 it's a much better time for patients right now. There's a lot to be optimistic about. It's funny, I haven't been in practice that long. I started in 2015 after I finished my fellowship. Uh, down in Texas, and and the way I practice today is is very extremely different from how I, I practiced uh, just seven years ago and what I was taught. So I think if I were to answer on the exams, uh, the old way would no longer be correct, uh, and and that that wasn't necessarily true in the twenty or thirty years before. There's always been advances; we've been making progress, but it's been much more incremental than I would say in the last five years. Mm -hmm. Um, Huge changes. If you look at um, the uh, Food and Drug uh, uh, Administration in the the U.S., in the space of lung cancer, there are literally dozens of new agents that have been approved in just the last two years, making lung cancer uh, not just one disease, but a collection of of very um, unique diseases that have unique treatments. Um, so now we're able to, uh, and, and Quebec is, is leading the way in that regard um, in terms of molecular profiling of, of lung cancers. Wherever you are in the province, if you've been diagnosed with a lung cancer, you have access to advanced molecular profiling, um, genetic testing to, to determine if you're, you're, you're a patient who would be eligible for one of these new treatments. Um, and so that pace of innovation is just is just unparalleled, I would say, in oncology. So yes, it, it's never a good time to get a diagnosis, but patients have way more options in front of them now than they did just a few years ago. And and one of them um, that that's become a standard of care, or that's becoming a standard of care, is immunotherapy. Um, that's been a real game changer, right? Not just for lung cancer, for thoracic cancers. Um, but all kinds of, you know, uh, bladder cancers, and melanoma. Um, tell us a little bit how it works and, and why it's still, why it continues to be promising. Yeah. So, you, you know, before it was about 10 years ago that uh, there was an article in Science saying immunotherapy was the, was the new thing. And it, and it wasn't a lie. It was true just a, just a few years after because it took some time to do all the trials. But 
Um, immunotherapy is now a pillar of cancer care the same way surgery or radiotherapy or uh, chemotherapy or, or even palliative care are. Um, and, and the reason why it's such a potent uh, treatment is that it, it, it leverages our own immune system's incredible ability to recognize foreign um, um, living things, whether it's a, a germ or a, a cancer, adapt to it and kill it. Uh, cancers are, are uh, an abnormal growth, uh, cells that have mutated, that come from us, but have changed to grow out of control. Um, and those kinds of cells are always popping up and a, a, a healthy person's immune system recognizes it and kills it immediately. Um, but, but a cancer develops this ability to put our immune system to sleep so that it's sort of ignores the fact that this growth is there. And, and what scientists were able to figure out is the specific molecules by which cancers put our immune system to sleep. And that's what immunotherapy is. It's a, it's a molecule that's infused into the uh, blood that awakens our immune system and, and, and gives it back its ability to, uh, to recognize and kill uh, cancer cells. So now you can uh, combine uh, that incredible power of the immune system with all of our other conventional treatments, be they surgery, radiation, or, or, mm -hmm. or chemo. And it's, it, it, yeah, it's helping uh, so many patients. And, and part of the fact that it's something that you can offer uh, a lot of patients uh, now that it's a, become a standard of care is because of some of the work that, that you did, right? Um, you were lead on a major clinical trial at the Montreal General Hospital is one of the, the many sites worldwide, but a really important site. Um, and, and you were kind of, again, instrumental in making it part of the standard of care for patients. So um, it, how did that happen? How did you, um, what did you find and what are the results that you were able to um, establish from those clinical trials? Sure. So we've known for a while that if we can pair treatments that go everywhere in the body, like chemo, for example, with surgery, that we can get the best possible outcomes. But this trial, uh, which was, was started by some colleagues down at, at Johns Hopkins, um, was looking to compare chemotherapy alone to chemo with immunotherapy as treatments given before going on to that surgical removal of the disease. Um, I was fortunate to be to be uh, one of the one of the investigators on the study, and and we really had a phenomenal team at, at the MUHC uh, that was able to to open the study really quickly, and and we were able to recruit a lot of patients. Um, we were one of the top recruiters in the world, which which is surprising because we were there. There are sites in China and Europe that where the population is much higher than it might be in Canada. But so so we did very well, and and, and that has contributed to, uh, you know, five years later when the results came through and we saw that um, that by adding immunotherapy, patients were surviving quite a bit more, uh, longer, and without recurrence of disease. Um, it, it was very important to leading to that those drugs being approved. So, mm -hmm. so Health Canada approved the treatment. The publication came out in March. Health Canada approved the treatment in August of this of 2022. And um, the company, BMS, uh, that produces the drug, offered an access program 
as of September. So, so across the country, we were the first country outside the United States to have access to this. And I think part of the reason why it was, it's not usually that fast in Canada, the part of the reason why it was that fast is because so many pa Canadian patients participated in the trial. Mm -hmm. and, and that leads all of the regulatory bodies to believe that, you know, this is important for Canadians. Because so, so part of your, your mission now, having seen this, is to get more people to participate in future trials that may lead to these breakthroughs like this. And now yeah. everybody has access to this and, and well not, you know, the patients who will benefit from it and with improved outcomes, right? So That's right. So, so you know, progress in, in cancer, uh, in medicine in general, involves a partnership with patients. I mean, we, we need patients to, to give that gift of being part of trials. Um, and and the, it's a lot to ask of patients to be part of these things. There's extra tests, there's extra visits to the hospital that are required, and it's still a very small proportion of the eligible patients who will agree to it. Uh, part of yeah. Sorry, what what is the proportion? If oh, it's well below five percent. It's somewhere between two and four percent of of all eligible patients who who actually participate in okay. trials. Okay. Okay. And I guess you were you were going to say what are some of so. Before we get to those who have um, logistical issues or, or may uh, not want to do it for other reasons, what do people tell you? What, what reaction do you typically get from, from patients when you ask them to be part of a clinical trial? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's always a little bit different. You know, every situation is unique. Um, but patients are generally coping with a lot of bad news, a lot of anxiety, Um the healthcare system being what it is, it's usually taken a patient weeks to months to get to a point of having a diagnosis and meeting someone who will finally treat their cancer. And so if they get any sense that there's going to be further delays or that there's going to be um, more complexity to getting started with their treatment, which sometimes a clinical trial can introduce, they're re really reticent about doing that. And you know, what I try to explain to them is that, that it can feel like an interminable process, but, but having the most strategic and the most sophisticated approach to tackling the problem and doing the most uh, appropriate thing for them is worth that extra little bit of time. Mm -hmm. and so investing a little bit more time early on to get the right thing and the, the most cutting edge thing can, can be a, a real benefit to them. And, you're, and you can't necessarily promise this is going to be extremely successful for you, right? Like you're still taking a chance, but what is, what's the payoff for them if it's, you know, if, they, if it doesn't work for them? Yeah, well, uh, so there's, uh, I try and frame it in the following way. Like you said, you can't promise to the patient that by virtue of being in the trial, everything will necessarily be okay. Cancer is just one of those things that has so many unknowns and still is a difficult like, lung and upper gastrointestinal cancers are difficult to treat cancers. Um, but when you're in a clinical trial, you have the support of a whole team behind you. you you're, you've become this, this jewel of, of, uh, uh, of great importance. Not that that's not the case in standard of care, but there, there's, we recognize that that's a big gift that patients are giving. And, and, and there's so much value to learn for the future in that, in that gift. And so there's a whole team that's built around each patient to make sure that they're followed through their care, 
Um, things have to happen in very specific uh, time frames, so there are no no delays allowed in terms of surveillance scans or things will be ordered in a much more efficient kind of way. So in in many ways, by agreeing to be in a trial, a patient is 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 giving themselves the opportunity to be in a highly regimented, uh, systematic treatment um, plan that isn't subject to all of the risks within the standard of care uh, setting where, you know, it's hard to get through to someone on the phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't know when your tests are being done. You're on wait lists. And that, that sort of thing doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. in and at trials. the very least, you're getting the standard of care. You're getting That's above right. and beyond. And, it's not and, like that part's being affected. Yeah, right? and there's so. just a huge amount of research that goes into making that new thing that we're offering in the clinical trial a possibility. So mm -hmm. we tend to have a lot of um, optimism about what the, these these trials can offer. Doesn't always pan out, but in, say in the case of this trial that we did, uh, bringing immunotherapy uh, to resectable lung cancers, those patients who participated really ultimately benefited. Now, some know. of them are alive today that wouldn't have been correct and simple. Correct, right? and and and. Um, and they got access to drugs that were only really became available five or six years mm -hmm. later. So, yeah. and so now one of the things you want to do is, you know, um, you cover huge territory. Um, what, what are you, you want to offer this, these clinical trials to more people, but they're, you know, they're not offered in community hospitals. Yeah. It's at in, you know, the city, the university uh, hospitals. So what do you, how do you go about doing that? What's your, what's, what's your mission right now? Yeah, it's it's a big undertaking, but um, it, it it's you know equity and diversity is a is a hot topic nowadays, and and it's important because um, if the trials that we do only really recruit highly educated, well-to-do um, white people who live downtown Montreal, they're not really representative of all of the patients that uh, that are out there, and it's a big issue with clinical trials right now that the people who do participate are not always representative of the actual people who are out there so we have a great asset in in quebec is that we and in canada is that we have a public health care system and there's equal access for patients for standard care things but by by pairing that um great um, aspect of our healthcare system and, and, and creating a network of research that goes out to the, the community and, and offers these uh, trial opportunities to patients who are further afield. By definition, we create a more diverse and equitable um, um, set of data. We, we, we allow a, a far more diverse group of people to participate in the trials because a patient who lives two hours from Montreal is unlikely to want to make those extra visits and drive in through traffic and park downtown. But it's important to know how this treatment might affect that person because they might be different from mm -hmm. someone who lives in, in, the, in, the, in the downtown area. It also helps us increase the total number of people we put on these trials, which means that instead of uh, waiting a year to get all the people we need, maybe we, we do it in six months. That means that we might shave many years off of the ultimate answer 
and bring these new treatments much sooner. So there's a lot of upside for, for our society as a whole in terms of being more efficient in term, uh, with, with these research efforts. So in, in terms of you know, bringing um, cl clinical trials to these community hospitals closer to patients, w what do you hope that will look like for patients? Will it be sort of satellite teams? Um, what would that look like? Yeah, so I think it, it means leveraging a lot of what we've learned through the pandemic in terms of using uh, remote visits, um, uh, virtual uh, clinics. It, it also means uh, personnel to support going to the patient rather than having the patient come to us or, as you say, creating these satellite clinics where where the, the nuts and bolts of the research efforts, whether it's medical imaging or blood taking, um, so that so the patient doesn't have to get in a car and drive three hours into town just to have a blood test so that mm -hmm. it's done here. Mm -hmm. There will be certain things that have to be done in university hospitals, things like surgery or advanced technological platforms that can only be in certain places. Um, and, and patients understand that. But a lot of the things that require travel from patients in clinical trials are much simpler than that. It can be as simple as uh, filling out questionnaires about what their quality of life is. Uh, we have people travel in two hours to, to, to do that sort of thing or to sign yeah. consents. So there's a lot of technological solutions that we could bring uh, to facilitate that. Um, and our, our patients are becoming more and more sophisticated in that regard that they can do those things. And, and so, what do you what do you need <laughs> in order to yeah. in order to facilitate this and to accelerate this? So, I mean, at the end of the day, it ends up being money. Uh, um, I think um, the money is there to support those technological solutions, to support the personnel that's required, um, to facilitate all the contracts that need to be signed between hospitals with industry who are helping us run these trials. Mm. Um, and just to create a well-oiled, efficient machine and to kickstart us into a mode where instead of just reaching out to those 3% of patients who live in a convenient location and, and have the education and, and desire to be a part of trial, to expand that to be, say, closer to the 20% mark, um, that, that has a lot of benefits for our patients. It has a lot of benefits for our uh, technological innovation uh, research platforms for being leaders in terms of discovery at a global level. Um, this means we bring treatments to patients earlier. Um, and it also has economic returns, you know, because uh, patients who participate in clinical trials um, come with a lot of financial support. So um, industry or uh, academic grants will pay for many aspects of the care of these patients to make it simple for them uh, and because that's one of the requirements in a research setting is that there's money to support the research effort mm -hmm. and so that's that the the idea is that this is self-sustaining you know that that Quebec would become a very competitive place to run research um, uh, which means we bring treatments earlier and, and we, uh, we feed our, our scientists so that we can be leaders in discovery. And, and just to, to, to close off, you know, off the top, I was asking you about the changes that you've seen in the past 5, 10, 15 years uh, with everything that's happening, you know, these options that are offered through the clinical, what you're finding through the clinical trials. 
catching the you know screening better screening catching the the cancers uh, or at an earlier stage where do you think we'll be in 5 10 15 years what are you what are you dreaming of well it's it's uh, it's very like you said before it's a super exciting time um, I'm a, I'm a surgeon, so you know my my day to day job is to offer patients operations with the hope that it will cure their cancer. Um, but by being open minded about how these new treatments, these pills, these infusions can be so effective at er eradicating the disease, and we also have to think about being judicious about how we. Um, use these invasive uh, surgical techniques which yes they can bring cure but they also bring consequences um, for patients that are lifelong and, and so um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that you know there will be some cases where all we need to do is is get a good understanding of their tumor and pair it with the right treatment and almost like a pneumonia or a uh, some some kind of infection, we treat it with an antibiotic, and that, that's all they need. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I don't think we're too far off from being able to to offer that. You know, obviously, the more we have partnership with our patients to to do this kind of work, the more likely it is to become a reality. Um, and 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 it's incredible uh, when you deal with patients day to day how how committed they are and open they are to these things you just have to create an environment that that makes it easy and appealing for them to say yes okay well hopefully this helps thank you dr spicer thank you so thank much you. for taking uh, your time and for everything that you do thank you thank you this was great now we have a lot more about the groundbreaking work that's being done by the division of thoracic surgery at the mgh on the foundation's website codelife.ca and there you can also discover other innovative initiatives that are made possible by the generosity of our donors so check it out and follow us of course on social media see you next time